Are ocean carriers at the mercy of economic storm clouds, or do they sometimes create their own typhoons? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Operating massive container ships and trades the world over is no easy business. Capital costs are immense, and carriers are subject to the busts and booms of economic cycles. There's also the need for supporting land-based infrastructure, ports, trains, trucks, warehouses, to be considered. But one could also argue that the industry is, at least in part, a victim of its own erratic behavior. Is it building ships that are too big and unwieldy to meet the needs of shippers? Is it too quick to slash freight rates, thereby jeopardizing the bottom line? Today, we'll delve into these issues with Mary Brooks, professor at Dalhousie University and a recent winner of the prestigious Onassis Prize for Distinguished Academic Work in Financing, Trade, and Shipping. She'll help us to understand what drives this industry, how it juggles considerations of cost and service, and what drives carriers out of business. So here is my conversation with Mary Brooks. Professor Mary Brooks, welcome to the show. Good morning. And I should mention congratulations on winning the 2018 Onassis Prize in Shipping, which you shared with Professor Wayne Talley of Old Dominion. Congratulations on that honor. Well, thank you very much. I was absolutely stunned and very much thrilled. Sounds like you're quite deserving a 40-year academic career, which certainly gives you a unique perspective on the questions I want to ask you about the state of the global shipping industry these days. Maybe we could start out by asking, based on your experience and view of this industry over a number of decades, just give me a general idea of what is the state of the shipping industry today, especially liner shipping and container shipping in terms of profitability and the like? Well, liner shipping is in good shape in the sense that it's had a last year good recovery. It had a bit of a downturn, well, a lot of a downturn after the economic recession. But again, about two years ago, it was not doing so well, and now it seems to have come back up. It certainly is an industry that has had its ups and downs over the years. Partly, I would argue, and maybe I don't know if you agree with me on this or not, but a lot of it is self-inflicted, perhaps in terms of the way in which these carriers choose to introduce ships into services. Where are we now on capacity issues? There's For a number of years, there was severe overcapacity, too much space for not enough cargo. Actually, that's always the problem in this industry. The cargo capacity is designed for the peak not for the average. So in the end, what happens is vessels are always looking for cargo. So they're always looking to take cargo from their competitors and always deteriorates into yet another price war. And then there's a bit of a recovery and we start the cycle all over again. The industry is an interesting one because the number of companies in the industry has changed dramatically over the years. And the number of ports and facilities has also changed. So we have severe competition in the shipping industry on the liner side, and we also have severe competition between ports. So not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> now, the carriers, global carriers have 
become famous over the years for manipulating the amount of capacity from month to month or year to year by laying up temporarily certain ships in order to reduce overcapacity and thereby drive up freight rates. And then they'll put it back in service during peak. And then during peak, they won't have enough capacity and end up so-called rolling freight on the docks, that is, delaying it to another sailing. Are they doing that now? Are they laying up capacity, creating shortages or less capacity based on their own actions? The issue is really more, rather than layup, one of cascading, redeploying Mm -hmm. the larger ships to the lower demand lanes, and then those lanes redeploy, and you end up with the cascading down through the marketplace. Layup is an option, but really I think the last time the layup was really bad was in the economic recession. The issue really is more one of taking capacity out of the market with slow steaming too, because that's now almost become a permanent way of dealing with too much capacity. If you move the ship at a slower rate, you do need more ships to service the same level of cargo. And of course, that drives up shippers as opposed to carriers, shippers inventory costs because freight and goods stay on the water longer. It takes longer to get to market. So that's a, a, yes. a cost concern for the customer, is it not? Well, it is, but it also means that customers who are particularly savvy spend time looking at alternate routings. Who is serving me more directly? Who has fewer stops between my origin and destination of my sea leg? Or who can provide a faster land transport side once it hits tidewater. So, for example, I think that uh, this whole situation has been one of the reasons that has led to the success of Prince Rupert in growing traffic from nothing in 2006 to having to expand yet again. For container cargoes or bulk cargoes or what? No, container cargoes. Really? Part of that goes back to Prince Rupert is much closer sailing time than Vancouver, Seattle, Oakland, L.A. Long Beach to North Asia. And so if you're moving something from, say, Shanghai to Chicago, it's so much faster to get it to Prince Rupert and then by CN Rail down to Chicago that the inventory carrying cost is where the saving is made for the shipper. So they're starting to look at, well, is there an alternate routing here? And it becomes a, where am I willing to take the trade-off? Is it about the inventory carrying cost or do I really need to have that product in a floating warehouse? And I'm quite happy to let it be in a box for a little longer, so long as I know where it is. Maybe it's cheaper to keep it on the ship than it is on land, on real estate, in a warehouse. I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. So they maybe depend on those as being warehouses. So interesting that that actually does turn out in some cases to be a benefit to a shipper. Now, now you talk about this cascading phenomenon whereby you introduce a big new ship in a major route, and then the ship that was in that route is a little bit smaller, and that gets put in a smaller route, and then the one all the way down. For years, carriers were accused of never scrapping, actually scrapping vessels, or at least not doing it at enough rate to actually take some of these older ships out. Is there actually, at the very end of this cascading ladder, is there scrapping taking place, or do old ships never die, they just go to other trades? Well, the scrapping is another market altogether from the shipping market, and there are times when the scrapping prices are sufficiently high that owners are encouraged to scrap, and there are other times when they can't get enough for the steel to make it worthwhile. So 
they are constantly trading that off. So that's a trade-off for the ship owner as opposed to the cargo owner. So how this market works always depends on your perspective. There are many things to be taken into account, including um, if your ship is fully depreciated, do you need it or is it now an asset that's not useful? And one of the other things that's going to drive up the question of scrapping is going to be the new sulfur rules that come into effect in 2020. So it's a complicated industry. And my area of interest within that industry has to do with the relationship between shipping companies and ports and the way that the shipping industry liner companies are regulated by competition authorities. Well, I want to talk about regulation in a moment, but it's interesting you talk about the relationship of ships and ports because in this respect, ship size becomes an issue because ships have gotten so big that there's really only a limited number of ports that those largest ships can even visit anymore, and the strain that they're putting on infrastructure at port side is immense. Can ports handle these big new ships, and what are they doing to handle it if indeed they can? Well, there's a lot of ports that have been able to handle the ships all along. The crunch has come is that many U.S. ports have had to work hard to increase their ability to handle the size. Some of it has to do with the geology, by which I mean the rock, or is it a port that's dredged? Is it a, a good harbor or not a good harbor? So if we look at it in that sense, the U.S. has been a bit behind the rest of the world in that a lot of its ports, other than the largest one, L.A. Long Beach, L.A. and Long Beach, they are two ports. The issue really there is that those two ports are able to handle cargo that some of the other ports have not been able to. And so dredging becomes the issue, and that's an expensive proposition, whereas dredging doesn't happen in other ports that are naturally deep and capable of handling quite large ships. But even if the port can handle that, if it's deep enough, if the berths are long and wide enough, you still have the issue of inland infrastructure, tremendous bottlenecks that result from offloading thousands of containers onto a dock at, at one time and then trying to put all those boxes on trains and trucks and move them inland. There are choke points all along. So how can ports and other facilities inland deal with that challenge? In some cases, ports have been able to deal with the challenge by simply relocating. I know it's, uh, it's not simply, but for example, the port of Sydney, Australia, relocated to Port Botany in Botany Bay in order to service the eastern Australia area. And that took the port facilities out of an area where Australians said, we want to enjoy our harbor, and Sydney Harbor is no place for a container terminal. The flip side of it is that if you choose to invest in rail links that go to an inland terminal, and there are quite a few of those in the U.S., for example, where we take the pressure, some of the pressure off the port, by having a situation where the boxes are loaded onto shuttle cars that go by rail on dedicated corridors. So there are ways of handling it, but it always takes an investment. It takes vision as well. 
How you design your port to fit in its urban context is one of the great research areas of the day. One of the questions it boils down to, I think, has again to do with ship size, and that is over the last 20 or 30 years, we saw a progressive increase in the size of container ships. With every line, every major line feeling that it had to jump on that bandwagon and top its competitors to the point where now we have ships that capacity of well over 20,000, the equivalent of 20,000 20-foot containers. I'm just wondering if that ultimately was a mistake. Do you think that ships got too big, too unwieldy, that it limited the number of calls and caused all these infrastructure problems and was not at base of benefit to shippers? Or it was just a natural economic trend that had to happen because of the need for unit economies? Which is it? Well, when you talk to ship owners, quite often when they look at the economics of making an investment in a larger ship, the thing they look at is what they call a slot cost, the amount that it costs to put one 20-foot equivalent unit into the ship. And they take a look at the capital cost and the operating costs and just divide it by the number of boxes and say, okay, I reduced my cost by 30% and the larger ship has a newer, more modern engine. So I've also reduced my fuel cost per box as well. And if I can do an alliance so that I can have fewer ships that are larger on the same route with another company, I can change the economics of this so that it makes sense where the rubber hits the road or doesn't hit the road, as the case may be, is when they realize that in order to get all of those slots to a utilization level that is remunerative and high, or, highly, or highly profitable, depending on where they are in the range, they may just say, uh, oh, well, I will get it from my competitors. I will steal that business from the next person. And you know what? How do they do that? Oh, well, I'll just price it lower. And then they wonder why transport costs drop, but they're not profitable. Well, they're fighting against a competitor who says, well, I'll drop my price too. And the ones that are quietly absorbing business are often the ones who say, hmm, I'm going to figure out which ones I can roll. In Atlantic Canada, peat moss is the famous example. A box of peat moss is not worth a lot. <laughs> and so I can roll the peat moss because it's not one that generates a lot of money for me. And if I can get pick up the snow crab, I'm going to do well. And so they'll make decisions based on serving some customers better than other customers based on the value of that cargo to them. And they're all trying to compete for the very high-end cargo, and they think that they can do it with a lower slot cost and ultimately be more profitable. But what I'm wondering is everything you just mentioned is purely an exercise in internal cost calculations and efficiencies within those companies without any particular emphasis or perspective on the impact on service to shippers. So in other words, yeah, they have this alliance of multiple carriers, but they still can't call certain ports anymore because the ships are too big. And also, you don't want to be, just as in the case of passengers on a giant jumbo jet, you don't want to be the last box or the last the last person off that plane or the last box off that ship, right? So there are some service considerations to be taken into account as well, I would think. Absolutely. And so if you're a freight forwarder, you want your box to be the last onto the ship and the first one off. 
And if you've got the high value cargo, you want the same. And everybody always wants that. And who gets it, of course, is how the line treats their customers. And if you've got more volume, you're going to be treated better. If I'm Walmart or Home Depot, I'm probably going to get better treatment than the guy who's got just one box every two weeks. It's the law of the capitalist jungle, I guess, right? It is. It is. He's got to live with it. The other question, though, I mean, we talk about freight rates and, and whether they're profitable to a carrier at the moment of being imposed. And yet for years, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, for years, the industry has been accused of not making back its cost of capital, even when it's nominally profitable on a short term basis. Is that the case? Do you think there are some underlying not unprofitabilities that threaten this industry over the long term? Well, some companies make back their cost of capital some years and a lot more and mm -hmm. other years lose money. So the real question is, is over the longer term, are they able to make enough to stay in business? And it was quite obvious that Hanjin did not make enough money to stay in business. So the marketplace worked in that sense, in that when the Korean government said, I think enough is enough in terms of our support of this company, the company went spectacularly bankrupt. And who paid the price? The shippers, because the shippers' cargo was stuck wherever it happened to be at the time. And if I was a shipper, I'd probably be saying to myself, why did I choose Hanjin over another company that I thought was more stable? Maybe they offered me a lower price. Is that a lesson you think that shippers will have learned or can they conveniently forget it a couple years later? Because oh, they, they do? do seem to be obsessed with, low, with the lowest possible price, no matter how much they talk about the need for service. They're always obsessed by the lowest price. If you ask somebody what's important to you, but that doesn't mean that that's what's really important to them. If somebody says, do you want to pay less? You'll always say, yes, I want to pay less. Oh, give me the same thing and I want to pay less. That's mm -hmm. just human nature. The issue here really is, is that it's cyclical. There is always a company that is going to go bankrupt. And it's not just the shipping industry. It's many industries. And there are always companies that have good management and do well because they know their business and they look after their business. So to uh, be on the opposite side with an example, there's a little company that little company, it's sizable ships that operates between North Europe and the Canadian and U.S. East Coast Atlantic Container Line. Now, why are they successful over the long haul? They have built ships that will do whatever you need to have done. And so if you've got equipment that rolls on, they've got row row. And you have open tops, they can do open tops. If you've got weird sizes, they can do it. So they service a very broad market that is looking for something more than just a dry van. So if we look into that always cloudy crystal ball, where do you see this industry as going? Do you see further consolidation, a reduction in the number of players? What other types of trends do you think might be down the line for this very sometimes unstable business? We now no longer have really effective conferences in the world, which are the price-setting mechanism for scheduled 
liner service. Conferences really only still exist in Asian trades and in South-South trades. So that means that we've seen the demise of that feature of the market. We've had alliances developing, but the more the alliances consolidate, the more they draw attention of the competition authorities going at what point is this going to end up with one carrier or two carriers dominating the market and then being able to extract a much heftier price out of the shipper. And so I think we must be getting awfully close to that relook at what alliances mean in terms of an adequate supply of choice to the shipper. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's never a boring industry, that is for sure. But, no, it isn't. Yeah, but uh, listen, uh, Onassis Prize winner, Professor Mary Brooks, I want to thank you so much for spending a little time with us here to describe the dynamics of the ocean shipping industry. Uh, it's a fascinating discussion. Thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you. That was my conversation with Professor Mary Brooks of Dalhousie University talking about the state of the ocean shipping industry. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. For any comments or suggestions on this or any episode, email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.